Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. In this unprecedented time, you might be hearing this phrase a lot lately. One could say that every moment is unprecedented, and it is. But it's hard to shake the feeling that it's different now, that things are spinning out of control. Even before the pandemic struck, our phones were constantly abuzz with news of the suffering of people here and around the world. Many Buddhists would say that the proper response to this unprecedented time is to turn inward, to use the tools of meditation to develop skillful states of mind. Others might say this isn't enough, that we need to be out there, on the streets, helping others, and demanding action from our representatives and our communities. These two options, however, do not preclude each other, says Sharon Salzberg, a meditation teacher, author, and longtime friend of mine, who will be joining me for a series of five podcasts about affecting change. We'll speak with Sharon first, and then, in following episodes, four other changemakers will be joining us. Shelley Tegelski, Michael King, Daisy Hernandez, and Arian Moyayed, who are using their unique platforms to bring about real change in the world. Today I'm talking to Sharon Salzberg about her new book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World, which inspired this project. This book encourages us to overcome negative emotions and develop the courage to act skillfully in our communities. Sharon Salzberg, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's so funny to hear myself say that because normally I just say, hi, Sharon. Hi, James. It's good to see you. And you too. I just want to provide some context for the readers. I mean, Real Change was initially going to be published in May, and it was before COVID and certainly before the anti-racist protests swept the country. But you do include a preface that is shortly after the onset of COVID, I think. Yes. A mutual friend of ours actually was reading the manuscript with an eye to excerpt it. And I think he really liked it. This is once the pandemic had happened. And I think he really liked it. But he basically said he was reading it and he looked at those examples and he'd think, that's what made you anxious. You wait, you know, wait till you see what's coming. So when the book was postponed to September 1st, I thought, okay, let me see if the publisher will allow me to write a preface to try to land it or contextualize it a little bit. And that's just what happened. Reading it, though, on the other hand, it comes just in time because issues like burnout and commitment and taking action are only ever more relevant with accelerating change. Well, thank you for saying that. I have wondered, but, that, you know, I mean, I, I can only in a way look at my own experience, which is that in a time of such uncertainty and disruption and anxiety and grief and, and so many things, like I looked for what was still true. And that actually became the theme of, of writing that preface. It's like, what's still true? Or what can uphold me? What can sustain me? As I not only try to come to a, a better place within, but actually have an effect on the world around me. Yeah, I was going to quote that, what's still true, what still holds at a time of such chaos and confusion. So what does still hold? What is still true? And I should mention that the book is called Real Change, and we'll get to in a moment. But first of all, let's just talk about what do you take refuge in? What is true? What does not change? Well, I think there are some time-honored practices, like my meditation practice, and some what seem to me to be timeless truths that sometimes are difficult or even unpalatable in a way, but I actually think are nonetheless true. My meditation practice, certainly because it provides moments of rest, which proved to be extremely important. I'm not to be continually caught up in, in everything going on. I'm being interviewed tonight by a journalist, and the theme is doom scrolling. So I said, like, what's doom scrolling? Yeah, what is it? I didn't know, you know? And I guess it's just like going through Twitter or whatever your medium is, looking for one bad story, you know, after another. And I realized I need some rest. I need to be able to center. I need to be able to ground. And then another thing my practice is providing that I think it can provide is an ability, first of all, to be with very painful emotions in a different way, to be able to hold them differently, not freaking out about them, but also not just being defined by them, to feel that anxiety or grief or whatever. 
in a different way. And then there's also the other part of that, which also features in the book, is this ability to to really kind of take in the joy, you know, and not to be consumed by your doom scrolling habit or whatever. You mentioned even as an antidote finding something positive every day, mm-hmm. I think. It seems to be an antidote to doom scrolling. <laughs> that can be like incredibly sound incredibly glib and stupid and as though you're being conflict avoidant or trying desperately to deny the incredibly painful circumstance that you or maybe others are facing. But it's really not that. It's a resilience training. It's being able to restore because we need some kind of balance. The purpose of Buddhist meditation and Buddhist philosophy, it seemed to me, from the first time I got acquainted with it, was not to suffer. Suffering itself is not redemptive. The point is to relate differently to suffering, you know, with compassion rather than with shame or dislike or terror, and to relate differently to joy, to actually let it in, to be able to experience it and not feel so guilty or deny it or be so distracted. You don't even notice it because then you just end up depleted and it just doesn't work. I'm reminded as you speak of a chapter I think you called Go Ahead and Eat the Banana Already. (laughs) It's talking about doubling down on suffering or attachment to suffering. And you write, it's as if we regard the intense level of suffering we feel in response to others as something sacrosanct a badge of honor that must not be let go of or even explored, despite the fact that it may be incapacitating us. I thought that was interesting and something about go ahead and eat the banana already. Yeah, that that actually is based in a story of a real-life event of a friend of mine who's an activist. And uh, the guilt that people feel about having compassion for themselves or giving themselves a break or allowing in the joy, you know, can be very, very strong. And and in the end, it's debilitating because the purpose of one's practice, the purpose of one's life's work, if it's to try to make a difference in this world, can't be to just like crumble, you know, or be crushed by suffering because then you're not serving yourself and you're certainly not serving anybody else. So I think all the time of the stress cycle, which is really a dynamic. You know, there's the stressor or the circumstance or the situation, and then there's the resource with which it's met. And some of that resource may come from inner resource that we strengthen in something like a meditation practice, and some of it comes from a sense of not being so alone, probably, you know, having a sense of community as we as we encounter difficulties. And so it's a dynamic, and, and we know that just from ordinary life. Like, you could be in a beautiful situation with great people around you and like rainbows and all these things, but inside you're miserable and you can't accept even the helping hands reaching towards you. It's not a good time, you know, even though you're in this beautiful place. And we also know from times of adversity and challenge that you might feel isolated and alone, or you might feel like you're part of a community, even just like the community of humanity. And it's different. It's a different way of experiencing what's going on. So I want to go back for a moment to the title of the book, Real Change. Again, we're going to be talking to several of the people who appear in the book and the real change they're affecting. But what do you mean here by real change? (laughs) Well, you know, in the publishing world, it started out as kind of a joke title because I had Real Happiness that I'd written actually 10 years ago came out and then Real Happiness at Work, and then Real Love, which came out a few years ago. It was my most recent book before this one. And so it was honestly kind of a joke, you know, at first, like, let's call this Real Change. And then we just never came up with a better title. It's interesting to me because I hear people in news clips or, you know, just in the world talk about Real Change. And I think, oh, a good title, you know. Right. I, You know, I thought it was a good title because – You know, at first I was thinking real change in terms of changing things in the world, but without the inner change that accompanies it, without the support of an inner practice, the change didn't seem sustainable. The change we were trying to affect and the activities we engaged in didn't seem sustainable without some sort of inner transformation or change. Well, I think, you know, uh, 
I interviewed a lot of different kinds of people for the book, some of whom have a formal meditation practice and some of whom don't. But there is some kind of, or several kinds of inner transformation, I think, that people go through in order to sustain an effort to try to make change in the world, because it does not come easily and usually doesn't come quickly. And so, for example, there's a woman in the book who's one of the leaders of the striking fast food worker movement when they were striking for $15 an hour minimum wage and the right to unionize. And I met several people from that community, and, and it was really powerful because I mean, they had nothing. You know, they work actually quite hard and were making so little that many people were just living in homeless shelters or, or places like that. And their parents and their families would say to them, basically, don't rock the boat. You know, you've got almost nothing and you'll end up with nothing if you just antagonize, you know, your bosses and these people. And, and there was some inner process that a lot of people went through, which really had to do with self-respect and some sense of, you know what? I'm a human being, and I'm working hard, and I should be treated better than this. So to rise up and make some demands, I think really demanded a kind of recognition of one's worth as a human being, which is, of course, the very thing that so many people stumble over in their meditation practice. It's, it's tough. You know, when we think of the good in someone else, it's one thing to reflect on the good in ourselves, it's like we get very squeamish, you know, I don't like that. Yeah, you talk a lot about self-worth and a lack of self-worth being a real obstacle to making the decision to take action. You also talk about the flight, fight, freeze response. Mm -hmm. You said that it was your tendency to freeze. Yeah. So that without a sense of self-worth can kind of be a crippling state. And you talk even about yourself when you were growing up, the sense of helplessness you felt as a child. And how did that eventually become a, a sense of agency when you became an adult? So I'm asking a lot of questions here, but they yeah. all kind of come they all kind of come together. Well, I, first of all, I was very happy when they added freeze to that description of the stress dynamic. It used to basically be fight or flight. And more recently, people have been saying, or freeze, because I felt that was much more me than Right. Either fight or flight. And I thought, you oh, don't finally. strike me. I mean, I, I've never known you in freeze mode, but that must have been yeah, something yeah. that you got. There. No, it's like in some description of uh, Buddhist personality types, the words are a little bit not so nice. But when they talk about the greedy or grasping type, the aversive or angry type, and the deluded type, it doesn't mean you're like a greedy person. It just means that your mind will go in certain directions. Like if you see something wrong or, or incorrect, you'll want to only look at the bright side. You won't want to look directly so much at the problem. Whereas if you're an aversive type, you only want to look at the problem and you don't want to look at the sense of possibility that's also attendant there. And if you're the deluded type, which I am totally, you're kind of just spaced out. You know, you don't notice much until somebody points it out. And you go, oh, yeah, right. And it kind of goes along with that sense of freeze, just like things are tough here. I think I'll take a nap inside. You know, I think I'll shut down, something like that. So it was very much my tendency. So I was kind of like that addition. I thought, oh, they got me. That's great. And then there's, you know, there's just that sense of not being stuck just because we have tendencies or, or habits, conditioning. That's something that we can recognize. And I would... I would place all good things in my life back in my meditation practice. And in the time of my introduction to that practice, to a sense of community. I and mean, so many of my really close friends I met in my very first retreat in January of 1971. And we've been friends ever since. And so, and having a teacher, you know, even if it's not like a teacher for life, it's somebody who cares about you, who you have a sense you can trust that. Their motivation is not their own glorification, if it's a good teacher. You know, their motivation is your freedom. And to be in a relationship like that is also very uplifting and healing. And so it was a combination of certainly the practice and the tools of the practice, because they're actually tools, and the context in which I was learning the practice that I think brought me forward. And so, for example, when you talk about helplessness, 
one of the things I find myself speaking about a lot these days is how if we can sit with our rage, sit with our anger, not blaming ourselves for it and also not being devoured by it, but actually kind of holding it as an experience and just be there with it, then we see often many strands because it's a complex feeling. It's not just one thing. We see the moments of fear and the moments of sorrow and the moments of whatever. And almost always we will see a sense of helplessness. And the anger is a better feeling than the helplessness, you know, because it's got energy to it. But I have found, and I keep speaking about this because I found it for myself, and it's very important, that if I can hang in there with the feeling of, say, the anger, till I get to the recognition of the helplessness, then I have a path. You know, that's where the sense of agency comes from. And also the wisdom that it may seem like a small act. It may seem like a kind of mediocre act, but you do it. And that's the path. It's true that several of the activists who appear in your book do not have a meditation practice, say. But in any event, for you, you say that the meditations of mindfulness and loving kindness practice have been the most sustaining practices of all. Mm -hmm. And so are those the ones who eventually brought you to the sense of agency? Well, those are my two main practices. And I would say, I mean, there are a number of people in the book who do have a meditation practice. Right. It's just not all of them. And so, and yet I find that what I feel like I uncover and reinforce through my practice of meditation, they do in other ways, mm -hmm. nonetheless, because I think, you know, your original statements were really correct. We need a kind of inner fortitude and resilience and flexibility and openness in order to sustain some kind of work in the world. And work in the world can take a lot of forms. I mean, one of the things I really learned in the course of doing the book, I was in conversation with Bell Hooks when I was in Kentucky, and she told me she didn't like the term social change. And I teased her because I said, you know, I'm used to Buddhists who are like incredibly picky about word use. You know, they can drive you crazy with their exactitude. And I said to her, you're worse than like the most exacting Buddhist scholar I know, you know, like, because her point was that it elicited an image of protest, you know, striking, picketing, marching, yelling, and that was one manifestation. But she said to me, what about art? What about creativity? You know, things that stretch us beyond our accustomed place, you know, and, and leave us in the unexpected and maybe what we didn't dare to imagine ourselves. And, and so I looked at social action or the engines for social change, is another way of putting it, right. as much broader than I had started out thinking. Right. I really enjoyed that section, the exchange with bell hooks and the discussion about art. But in a similar way, people can look at meditation and other inner practices as passive or not engaged. And so that's a discussion that often takes place. In fact, you did a one-minute meditation for children interned at the border. Mm -hmm. You did that on Twitter and you got some blowback. What is mm -hmm. the misunderstanding? I had decided, actually, some people asked me if I would do uh, metta or loving-kindness meditation for the children in cages at the border. And I think I was, at, I was in an airport somewhere when I got that message. And then I said, I would really like to. I'm going to only be home for a few days and I'll see if I can create a script. And did. And then I led a minute meditation when I was back at another airport on my way somewhere else. You know, some people loved it and it was really important. And other people wrote me things like, well, you're as bad as the people who just want us to send thoughts and prayers. You know, you're not doing anything. Or why are you promoting this? Why aren't you donating? Or which I'd already done. Or, you know, whatever it was. And, and all I could say in response was the truth of my own experience, which was basically these things are very hard to look at. They're hard for me to look at. You know, that degree of suffering and abandonment and, and fear and so on. And one of the ways I can keep looking, which I feel I need to, is through that process of offering loving kindness. And when I take action, for me to sustain any action, it needs to be because I can connect to something bigger. And if I can't do that, I know it's basically a one-off. It's like a reflexive gesture of pain. 
And then I can't. I can't hang in there anymore and keep trying. And so this is how I found something like a loving kindness meditation could serve, that it kept directing my attention where it needed to go, however uncomfortable it was, and also in a bigger context so that it didn't feel so ruinous to, to be paying attention. Yeah, when you wrote about connecting with something bigger, I was going to ask about that, but you answered it pretty much. I think that's important too. You know, I want you to talk a little bit about a story you tell you and Joseph Goldstein and a big supporter of IMS over the years were looking at an old house and you were thinking, mm-hmm. you were thinking, nah, don't buy it. And they were both saying, oh no, but they saw its potential and they began to describe it and you realized they could see something in it that you could not. And you wrote something that I found very helpful. You said, I'm not skilled at seeing the seeds of longed for transformation in a building. I'm better at seeing it in people. And I thought, wow, I I wish I could see more potential in others. I think that would change everything for me, especially when I'm unhappy with somebody. (laughs) Well, I've never had children, so it doesn't come from that. I mean, I think it's it's something that in many ways does come from teaching. And the first part was also really true. We were going down to look at this building in Barry. It was just a house. It was a private home. It was incredibly run down. And the idea was that we were going to try to create a study center. Joseph and I had been in Burma not too long before, and this was like in the 80s. And uh, we were taken out of the monastery at one point for a tour, and we were taken to some place where looked like a graveyard because it was these marble, looked like tombstones. And somebody was with a hammer and chisel carving into the marble the teachings of the Buddha, the actual suttas. And we said, like, wow, what's that? That's like, you know, many lifetime occupation. And our person who had taken us out, the friend who became a tour guide for us, said, well, that's in case, you know, there's like an invasion and the monasteries are burned and the texts are burned and then we have a record. We can preserve the teachings. (laughs) After we left Burma, we were actually in uh, England and we were telling that story to Stephen Batchelor and he said, don't they believe in like software or something? (laughs) Which which they didn't know at the time. And uh, I mean, I think it was illegal to have a modem. But anyway, we came back and we really started pondering, you know, like what would it mean to have an institution, whereas IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, is so dedicated to the actual practice, the the learning of tools and putting those tools into practice, what would it be like to have an institution that really looked at the teachings, and especially looked at the teachings as they were applicable or not in modern life? Like I taught there once a retreat on right livelihood. You know, what does it mean in this day and age? So we decided, okay, we want to open another center. We'll open up a study center. So we went down to look at this property because it was right down the road, and it was a wreck. And this was Joseph and Sarah Daring, who were just, like, very enthused about it. And I could not figure out for the life of me what they were seeing. And I actually said to Joseph, please no, please don't, let's do it. And we did it, or more, they did it. And it's beautiful. It's like this incredible jewel. And it's serving a, a really great function. And so and I have had friends you know, moving to the area where I've gone on their tour with them, you know, and maybe one of the partners could just have a vision, oh, this place could be really great. And the other partners like quaking, you know, like, no, right. no, it just looks so bad. And I realized I actually do not have that ability in terms of property to imagine, but I actually can do it with people. And there have been many times when you know, somebody's going through a really bad divorce or some terrible thing, and I look at them and I just know when I see you in a year, you're going to be really happy. And I'm right. Yeah, I think so. That's been my experience anyway. So I want to go back to taking action again, because it is a big part of the book, along with the inner work and the practices that you provide to help sustain people when they experience burnout or despair or a sense of helplessness. There's a lot of support in the book for sustaining usually compassionate action. But you write, we have control over so little. The truth of that is sometimes exceptionally bitter, but we can choose to care and we can choose to act. That is the truth that frees us. 
Yeah, it's certainly not always the case that we see immediate results from our actions. I mean, sometimes we might, but I think it's a culture we're so trained toward instant gratification, and it's just not going to be that way. And there's often a lot of mystery involved. And then that goes back to the sense of it not being passive, it's engagement. And sometimes we have to do that engagement, we have to care, we have to try whether it's a friend or a family member or a community or a country, whatever it is, you know, we have to try. And yet, at the same time, we can insist that it's all going to work out just according to our wishes or our demands. And uh, we need to be able to hang in there. I don't think that meditation actually makes anybody passive, per se, although I know that's the reputation, that you're just kind of sitting there, you know, in a blissful stupor or something. I think... All along, I've seen and, and believe that one's inner work often uh, provides for a kind of good-heartedness and a recognition of the humanity of somebody else or something like that. But how and if that translates into actual action is another question. And, you know, sometimes we need another kind of education. Sometimes we need... Uh, a supportive community for that. You know, sometimes we need um, even to just believe that it's important or to be shaken a little bit out of our assumptions. And so I realized when I wrote the book and I did this loop, you know, where I was talking about individual action and then I started talking about looking at systems, which is a very Buddhist concept, really. Look for causes and conditions. Don't just stay on the surface but look for causes and conditions. That's how you make real change. If you change some of those underlying reasons that things are arising maybe perpetually the way that they are. You know, I, I think that that's just kind of attendant in, in waking up, but being able to translate that into action, I think is another step. And, and I was hopefully encouraging people to do that. You're listening to James Shaheen in conversation with Sharon Salzberg on Tricycle Talks, a podcast from Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. For 30 years, Tricycle has been dedicated to making Buddhist teachings and practices available to everyone. We do this through our print and digital magazine, our monthly screenings of spiritual films, weekly Dharma Talk videos, a Buddhism for Beginners educational microsite, an ebook library and a variety of online courses with expert teachers. If you're interested in learning more, sign up for a four-week free trial at tricycle.org slash subscribe. Now, let's return to the conversation with James Shaheen and Sharon Salzberg, talking about her new book, Real Change. You talk a lot about interconnectedness and systems, and that often it can require many people working on multiple fronts at once. You know, obviously, interconnectedness is a word that Buddhists use a lot. Also, non-Buddhists, especially nowadays, I hear it far more often spoken than I did 10 years ago. Sometimes these problems feel so overwhelming, but often we think that we need to tackle them alone. And I think you address that, too, with teamwork. And often we feel we are all alone. I mean, one of the things I, I always try to do going into a workplace or an organization to teach is I ask people, okay, how many other people need to be doing their job well for you to be able to do your job well? Mm -hmm. You know, because we can feel it's like the story of the superhuman or something. You know, it's just me and it's all up to me. But really, I mean, one of the most touching conversations. I've had recently was with a head of a medical practice who talked about an appreciation for the housekeeping staff that in his hospital that he never had before. Right. Or, you know, I, I think I told the story in the preface, actually. I was recording one of the guided meditations from the book for this journal, and they chose this loving-kindness meditation toward a neutral person who's somebody we don't strongly like or dislike. And and usually the recommendation is that you choose someone in your life that you'll tend to run into now and then. 
because you may not feel any great shakes when you're doing the meditation and offering them loving kindness, but you will see a difference as you keep encountering them, you know, through the weeks or months. And so for 45 years or so, my colleagues and I have been saying very glibly, like the checkout person in the supermarket, you know, that's the kind of person we look right through. We discount. We don't care about. We're indifferent to. And as I was reading it out loud, I kind of went, whoops, you know, look at that. Right. You know, look at those statistics. How many of them are getting sick? And, you know, it's like, whoa. And how dependent we are on them. We're totally dependent. I and mean, we like to eat, you know. <laughs> right. You know, also you mentioned healthcare workers or health aides because you were convalescing from an infection mm-hmm. in 2019. And your whole view of who they are changed because all of a sudden they were present in your life. Yeah. I mean, it was even more than present. We were living together, you know, because when I got out of the hospital with this infection, I was still on IV antibiotics and nobody knew how long that was going to last. I was in California. Nobody knew how long that was going to last. And uh, it turned out to be just two weeks, but it could have been two months. And the doctor that I was seeing there said, it's illegal to prescribe anything IV across state lines. You've got to stay in California. And she actually said, you can either go into a skilled nursing home, which in this area is going to be like hell, or you can figure something out. And so my friends that I've been staying with very beautifully invited me back. I said I was like the house guest from hell. You know, let me collapse one day so you can call an ambulance (laughs) and take me to the hospital. But they invited me back. And this other friend extremely generously said, well, let me get you nurses or let me get you help. And it turned out not to be nurses, but home health aides. And I had 24-hour care, you know, in, in the beginning. And so suddenly I was living with these people. And I'd always had a kind of distant admiration, very much so. Because as I said in the book, you know, I'd be at a friend's parent's funeral and somebody would always say, so-and-so saved our lives. So-and-so allowed my father to die at home with dignity. So-and-so, you know, and it was the home health aide. But it was not so personal for me until I was in this situation. And suddenly I'm like living with these people who are like, this is their third job or somebody's working the night shift because she has to take her father to dialysis during the day or and the dream of somebody was to go to nursing school. And it was just kind of an amazing experience. You know, I want to talk about equanimity because that also figures in the book. And when we talk about taking action, it, it's so fundamental. And it's where I'm probably most challenged. So I have to ask about it. <laughs> you quote T.S. Eliot, the great poet. And he said, for us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. And so I've heard you say before with regard to equanimity that part of it was simply knowing what you can actually change and what you cannot, having that sense, that discernment. And I just wondered if you could say something about choosing which actions to take and understanding that, or when we take an action to understand, not that the rest isn't so much our business, but the outcome is beyond our control often. Well, it is totally outside of our control and so many causes and conditions that affect something. And so to do something with our whole heart and to make an effort and to act with as much integrity as we can and to be as sensitive and aware of context as we can be is basically all that we can do because life is full of surprises. And sometimes You know, we're so demoralized and we think, well, what I did yielded nothing and it went nowhere. And then we find out later, oh, you know what? That did plant a seed. That kind of affected somebody in some way. And it didn't give me the result I wanted immediately, right away. But it actually did unfold in some way to have an effect. And if I hadn't tried, nothing would have happened. Right. And so there's just a lot of mystery involved. For some reason, you know, sitting here talking to you and actually looking at your picture on Zoom concurrent to recording this, I was thinking that we were actually together on September 10th, 2001 in Massachusetts. Yes, we were. And uh, our friend Amy, I was going back to Barry for the night and then thought I was heading to New York City on the morning of September 11th. And you and Amy got in two rental cars that night 
so you could follow her to where she had to turn on her rental car and then got in one and went back to New York. And that was all last minute. You know, yeah, you insisted we go for whatever reason. I don't remember. I did. Why. I had a, like a weird psychic thing. Yeah, you insisted we go. And sure enough, I was on my way to work in the morning and I saw the second plane hit. But had you not sent us home, we would be outside the city for I don't remember how long. Yeah, it was a while. You know, the other day we were talking about something that also I was looking over the book yesterday because I looked at it first several months ago and still not yet published, but I looked at the galleys again. And it reminded me of a conversation we had about intention and impact, mm-hmm. uh, what the difference was and why it was so important to sort of develop the wisdom to understand one's relationship to the other. Somebody uh, just asked me that question also. I was doing some online teaching for um, IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, and somebody was quoting me to me, which is always an interesting experience, (laughs) from my book Faith, which came out 18 years ago, and um, where I talked a lot about intention, which of course is the classical mode of understanding action within the Buddhist tradition, where the intention behind an action really is the karmic seed, it's what distinguishes one act from another act that looks identical on the surface, but is maybe coming from a very different place. Like you could give somebody something because you like them and you want them to have it, or because a lot of people are looking at you and you want to look like a generous person, or because you don't like them and you think it's going to, for some reason, drive them crazy to own it. It's the same gesture that is visible, you know, just handing an object to somebody, but coming from a different place. So there's tremendous emphasis on intention. And subsequent to that, in the same teaching, there's also an emphasis, although not really as strong, on the skillful execution of an action. You know, you might have a beautiful motive to give somebody something, but you might stop and think, well, I've only got one, there are 50 people in the room, maybe this is best done privately, or If you've ever been in a situation where, say, you're supervising somebody at work, being able to frame your communication in a way so that the person, should they choose to change, actually has the information they need. Like when you turned in that memo six weeks late, you know, four people couldn't go on vacation or something like that. And so there there are skillful and unskillful ways of carrying out our intention and Usually when we talk about it, it's for the reason that we need to distinguish the motivation or the intention from the skillfulness of the execution. Otherwise, people get really kind of squeamish. They like say, well, if I were to come from a more loving place, then that means I can only say yes, and I can only give away all my money, or can only let them move back in. And that's not so. Your discernment, your understanding might tell you, you know what, in this context, this particular relationship, the right thing is to say no, and it's to have a strong boundary or whatever. So it's in there in the teaching. What this person who was asking me the question was talking about was that in a lot of diversity and inclusion training these days, there's an emphasis on impact because in truth, people can be coming from a good intention and be so undiscerning or so insensitive or make so many assumptions about the people they're with, that the impact is is really detrimental, even though the intention was not to do harm. And so within the context of the teachings, it comes back to that second aspect of the action and and not poo-pooing that, you know, or saying, well, that's really minor because it's not. And I acknowledged, you know, in response to this question that there is so much emphasis on intention that, and in many ways that was revolutionary for its time, but I think we need to seriously look at balance. There's always those famous words, I was just trying to help. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) But just for a second, I'd like to talk about your own engagement. A lot of people don't know about some of the work you do and the social engagement you've undertaken over the years. And I'm thinking particularly about the families and victims of the Parkland shootings. Um, You've done work with them. Mm Mm-hmm. And it can feel like such a dark place to go to because it's so tragic and so unfathomable sometimes. How do you avoid burning out? I mean, you're dealing with like the worst kind of suffering sometimes. You talk about self-care a lot. How does that all work? 
Well, you know, even just from my years of teaching, I think I, I tend to avoid terms like avoid burnout or stay mindful or stay balanced because I think it's more a question of losing it and knowing how to return than anything. And that nice. goes back to lesson one in meditation practice. You know, you're with the breath, your mind wanders, you learn how to let go and start over. And I think as stupid as I thought it was when I first heard it when I went to India, I think it's been the most important life lesson I've ever gotten. So of course I burn out or or things are difficult. And But because of what I was saying before, what we were talking about before, I realized very strongly that the purpose of my practice was not to suffer, that there was nothing redemptive about suffering. You know, I was not ennobled by suffering because we all probably know a lot of people who suffer and they don't emerge more noble, you know, or kind or right. they're incredibly bitter and, and closed down and isolated. And, and yet there are people who go through so much and it's different. Like my teacher Deepama was one example of somebody who suffered terribly. She lost two children. She lost her husband and, and she was such a force of compassion and I used to look at her or people like her and think, boy, if I went through what she went through, I don't know if I'd care about anybody else, you know, because a lot of people don't, but some people do. And so I had incredible models of, of people who were not afraid to look at suffering because they knew it could be any of us, you know, that nobody was really immune in that and that there was a kind of love and sense of togetherness that was that was very important. So most of what I do in the world is teach, you know, in, in some way or another with different groups, either just open retreats, as we used to call them, through books or for particular populations and often caregivers, international humanitarian aid workers, domestic violence shelter workers, medical personnel, whoever it might be, first responders, people who are taking care of their elderly uncle, whatever the situation is increasingly survivors of gun violence and things like that. And I just find them amazing people. I mean, they're just amazing people. And it's a real honor. I also have engagement, like one of my great passions is voting. I noticed. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a postcard to send you, actually. You know, and I've always tried to not sort of say you know, vote for this person or vote for that person. But voting seemed to me to be a perfect expression of that really breathtaking sense of the Buddha, that everybody is worth something and that we have within us, whatever our life experience, whatever we may have gone through, whatever we may yet go through, we have within us this potential to connect and to care and to learn. And, and that having that voice, having that right, to express one's preference in that way. I think it's totally tied into my understanding of the teaching. And so I've always been a strong advocate of that and I've tried, you know, through voter registration and things like that. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like this year when people are not right. out with clipboards or things like that, but I think it's incredibly important. You also talk about anger. You know, you talk about honoring anger at some point rather than telling somebody, oh, you shouldn't be angry or, oh, calm down. But you also mentioned mining one's anger. So anger is a pretty difficult emotion to navigate since it can be so destructive. But there's another side to it. Can you say something about that? Yeah. The other side to anger is energy. And, and that can be incredibly important. And going back to the personality types, they say the aversive type, the person who's going to notice more what's wrong, say walking into a room, than what's right. It's just where their eye is going to go. Um, we also count on them, you know, because sometimes they're pointing to the hole in the carpet, which everyone else is studiously avoiding and trying <laughs> to look the other way from. And they're saying, no, look at that. You know, we need them. We need that kind of honesty and cutting through intelligence. It's just so damaging to oneself if we're not feeling it, but obsessed with it, lost in it, you know, defined by it and damaging to others and relationships and so on. And so it's a question of really harnessing that energy and that sort of clarity of, of truth telling and, and not being so bound to the burning, you know, and the kind of narrowed vision that anger can also 
give us. And so I'm not talking really about feeling anger. I'm talking about being lost in anger. Right. Where, you know, if you think about the last time you were really, really angry at yourself, it's not likely a time where you're also thinking, well, you know, I did five good things that same morning. You know, it's like those are gone. And so our our vision gets very small. I'm going to come back to self-care because it's a recurring theme, along with the practices that you offer to sustain us. The importance of self-care is sort of central, whether we're engaged or not, I would guess, but I'm just not great at self-care. And you write something interesting. You write, part of self-care is actually knowing who we are, what we want, where our boundaries are, and being able to genuinely be ourselves. That's part of part of what you wrote. I thought that was really nice. Can you say something about that? Yeah, like eat the damn banana, which, you know, yeah. <laughs> why are you torturing yourself? Yeah, I mean, part of what's complex in a way about teaching or talking about compassion, saying that population of caregivers is that we also live in a time where lack of empathy for others is so clearly delineated, you know, and and the cruelty and the coldness that can come out of objectifying others or all classes or races of people, whatever. And so the emphasis on empathy, on caring, on finding oneself in one another is is of great importance. And yet working with so many people who have a lot of empathy already, you know, those international humanitarian aid workers or nurses or whoever it is, they've got a lot of empathy, but they're burning out for some other reason. And it often has to do with unreal expectations, feeling you have to fix everything. It's all up to you. Lack of compassion for oneself. And so it's been powerful for me through these years to look at all those factors as well. You know, one of the people that you interviewed, Ellen Agler, talked about her realization about the relationship or difference between empathy and compassion, which Mm -hmm. I found very interesting, whereas empathy in many ways could lead her to burnout. Compassion was a more equanimous pose. Can you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, that's what research is showing. And in some Buddhist circles, at any rate, certainly around the Dalai Lama, they try to avoid the phrase compassion fatigue and use empathy fatigue because they feel compassion is a more holistic state that's more balanced and more nourishing. Whereas empathy is great. It's essential. It's like a a necessary but not sufficient condition for compassion to arise. Because, you know, I read a research paper which said, You need to have empathy for somebody who's going through a hard time. But if you over-identify, if it's like, oh, that could be me and this is what it would feel like. If you get overwhelmed, then empathy doesn't lead to compassion. It leads to empathic distress, where ironically, your own crummy feelings take center stage. You know, you're kind of not even that interested in the other person anymore. (laughs) You just feel bad. Right. You know? And so... Um, there's so much in, in that that's all like kind of common sense, you know, and so it's not selfish and it's not wrong and it's not inappropriate to have a sense of boundaries and some sense of balance where you're really taking care of yourself. And that's why, you know, when I said Buddhists are so exacting about language, well, researchers are too, you know, and they are trying to make a distinction between empathy and compassion. Well, why don't we end with joy? You touched on it before, but where is the joy in all this and why is it so fundamental, so necessary and encouraged? Well, the joy is is part of what restores us, you know, and it, it keeps us from being fixated or obsessed or doom scrolling, my new word, <laughs> my new term. I love that term. I know. I must admit I have doom scrolled. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you've gotten over it. Um, But uh, it's part of that knowledge that we do need to restore. We need rest. We need that ability to have some real resilience and to go forward in that basis. And, And the joy comes from different things. It comes from changing perspective. It's getting really small, looking at the smile of a child. You know, the classic example of like a little flower poking up through a sidewalk and also getting really big. You know, think how many people are doing loving kindness practice in the world at this time, or how many people from any tradition or or no, you know, particular faith tradition are really committed to the 
the well-being of others and to feel oneself a part of, in a way, a historical lineage that we are joining in this, this wave of those who respect the good, you know, good-heartedness and, and caring and, and not feeling so alone in one's efforts. You know, it comes from music. It comes from art comes from so many things. And you can feel what happens when you're inspired inside. And it's very different than the kind of grim execution of one's duty, you know, to try to be a kind person. Toward the end of the book, you mentioned something that is so important in Buddhism and also in considering our actions and, and the context in which we act. And you do mention lineage. I thought that was very nice. It's one of the ways that we realize we're not so alone. Somebody once said to me, when I was teaching a loving kindness weekend, she said, wow, you know, this stuff is so incredible. When did you make it up? <laughs> and I said, well, I didn't make anything up, really, you know, and you're lucky I didn't make it up. And that's the difference, you know, is that we are connecting to a lineage of centuries of right. people exploring these questions and, you know, what is still true in a time of complete chaos to bring it back to that. Well, thank you so much, Sharon. We're so lucky to have you as a part of that lineage. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And to our listeners, there are coming episodes with Sharon and me talking with some of the activists who appear in her book and the good work they're doing in the world. You've been listening to Sharon Salzberg, author of Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World, on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>